0: Grace, mercy, and peace are yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My brothers and my sisters in Christ. In 1992, a Baptist family minister released a book that was a breath of fresh air. For couples who had spent so long talking past each other, feeling neglected and ignored, this book answered a crucial need that they had. For couples who assumed for so many months or years that their significant other didn't care about them, it ignited their minds to the fact that maybe your spouse or your significant other just speaks a different love language. The wife who, who says, if my husband loved me, he would help me with the uh, dishes and take out the trash. He would do stuff around the house. Meanwhile, the husband is saying, of course I love you, and I show it by buying you all these gifts. They're going to miss each other. Or the husband that says, if my wife loved me, she would give me all these compliments. She would tell me, my biceps are really big. But meanwhile, the wife is showing her love him love by giving him a kiss and a hug every time he leaves and comes back to the house. When Gary Chapman released <clears throat> the five love languages, this put a finger on the problem so many people face. Is maybe your spouse or your significant other just speaks a different love language than you do. So they're showing you love, it's just that you're expecting to see it in the way you're used to, the way you want. And once you identify that, you can take steps to... Uh, progress in your relationship. And given the initial success of Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages, many other editions have been released. You got Five Love Languages for parents and kids. You got Five Love Languages for teachers and students, for leaders and followers, for managers and employees. But what all those Five Love Languages books have in common is it assumes that if you care about someone, if you respect someone, if you esteem someone, number one, you're going to show it in some way, whether they interpret it correctly or not. Number two, the way that you're going to show your love, your care, your respect for a person is you're going to try to find some way to make their life better, to make their life easier, more comfortable, or more fun by buying them presents or by giving them a hug or by doing stuff around the house or around the the work site. If you love someone, you'll try to make their life better, won't you? How about between you and God? Do you feel like you and God speak different love languages? You know that God loves you. You know that at least you're supposed to say that. We're in a Christian church after all. And by saying that, you are acknowledging that God has some interest in making your life better, whether you are checking Christianity out or you've been a Christian. The reason that it appeals to many people is because it holds out the promise that this religion could make your life better somehow, right? And I hear this all the time. I'm sure you do too. That as soon as somebody starts going to church more regularly, starts reading their Bible more regularly, there are some tangible benefits. They find that they're more at ease, that their anxiety is easier to address, they have an easier time forgiving. There are these real live benefits that people have. But, there's always a, a however, right? You know that God loves you. You know that God wants to make your life better. But there's that one thing that if he really loved you, if he really cared about you, he would do something about that. And chances are good you thought of your thing immediately. It could be a temptation or addiction that you wish you could just kick out of your life And you think, if that were gone, if I didn't have to struggle with that, oh, I would be so good. My relationship with God would be better. Everything would be great. Or it's a relationship that you're thinking about that seems to be heading in a negative direction. And you think, God, if you could just solve that, if you could just bring that person back to me, if you could just make everything good, my life would be fine. And then I could serve you better. I could glorify you more. You're thinking about your city, the things you see online, the the news, the, the accidents and the tragedies that happen every day. You're thinking about your nation, the climate that we're in of so much hatred and anger. And you're thinking, God, if you could do something about that, then wouldn't we be good? God, if you really loved us, why don't you solve that problem, whatever it is for you? Gary Chapman did something monumental when he wrote the five love languages. He caused couples to rethink, examine their assumptions about their relationships. How do you know your spouse or your significant other loves you? And are there other ways that they express it? And isn't that what Paul is doing for us in Romans? God wants you and me to re-examine our assumptions about our relationship to him. Is it right to say, if God loved us, he would do X, Y, Z? Paul in Romans would say, no. Much better to look at what he's already done. Much better to look at what God is already doing. So Paul begins. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Don't you love that? Paul says, we know this already. We understand this already. We get this already. Paul, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure I have an easy time recognizing that in all things, God works for my good. Seriously, that's got to be one of the most difficult parts of Scripture to accept, right? Right? That means in your temptation, through that addiction that you are fighting, God is working good because of what you have to struggle with, because of that relationship you're worried about, because of the stuff you're seeing online and on the news about how our nation is headed and all that stuff. God is working that for good, very hard to accept. And here's why. We are very very pain intolerant. That seems like so obvious I didn't even have to say it, right? When one of my sons falls on the hot concrete and scrape open their knee and they're bleeding, it's a race between my wife and I to see who can get to the cabinet faster, right? To get to the Band-Aid, the antibiotics. We want to make sure that our kids are pain-free at all times. And if they're ever in pain, we want to take that away. When your friend or, or when someone you love is having a really hard time they're crying they're, they're going through a real valley of life you want to you struggle over how to say the right thing to do what to take the pain away you don't want them to hurt anymore and you want to solve the problem as quickly as possible and why does it seem like god doesn't why does god let problems linger why does god let pain stick around. Paul says it's easy. It's not that God is powerless to do something about the problem. It's not that God is powerless to do something about the pain. He's stopping problems and pain constantly, more than you will ever know. So why does he let this one through? It's because God is so powerful that he can give pain a purpose He lets the problem linger. He lets the pain linger because it has a purpose to serve. And Paul says, take this for granted, my dear brother or sister. The purpose God has assigned to your pain, no matter how painful it is, is for your good. Let's just take one example. Our gospel for today. Jesus, he needs some time by himself. He needs some time alone. So he says, go on. Disciples sail across the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to go up here. I'm going to pray for a little bit. And the disciples are sailing. It takes them hours and hours. It takes them the better part of the night to sail across. And the waves are getting pretty bad. The storms are looking pretty nasty on that Sea of Galilee. They start to become very afraid. And Jesus himself is walking out to them something that almost for sure they did not expect to see Jesus breaking the laws of physics of surface tension he's putting his feet on top of the surface of the water and coming out to them who can believe it and so they're even more terrified when they see Jesus do this and Peter says Jesus what's going on he says take courage it's not a big deal it's it's just me guys peter says if it's you let me come out to you jesus he does a little bit but then he gets overwhelmed by the waves around him by the storm around him and he starts to sink jesus grabs him by the arm they get into the boat and the storm immediately dies down and they continue on their way now here's my question what benefit would have been given to the israel or i'm sorry the disciples if the storm didn't happen If they had an easy night of sailing, just from point A to point B, boom, they're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had said, I'm going to meet you on the other side, and then he does. And then they continue on with their merry way. Well, the disciples wouldn't have thought anything of it. But what benefit did they receive through the storm? They had an opportunity to freak out, yes, but an opportunity to see how weak they were how easy they were to be thrown into a complete panic, but how ready, how present, how wonderful Christ was in the storm. Jesus didn't stop the storm until the lesson was learned. And so for you, brothers and sisters, your pain, your problem is your storm. What benefit could it possibly have to you? Well, for starters, it will teach you to look for Jesus amidst the storm. And when you look for Jesus and when you lock eyes with your Savior Jesus through his word, what do you find? You find him speaking to you about what he's done for you. Those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. When you're talking with someone with a victim mentality, what does that sound like? It doesn't just sound like, oh, woe is me, life is so terrible. We all get like that. It doesn't always mean we have a victim mentality. But someone who has choos- ch- chosen to adopt a victim mentality speaks about their life in terms of what's happening to them. Everything bad that's going on is a terrible situation that <laughs> a powerful unknown forces are inflicting upon them, and they are innocent and they are helpless to do anything about it. And so they'll talk about the divorce that they're going through, the job that they just lost, or what's happening in their neighborhood as a bunch of evil forces out there attacking them, and they have nothing to do with it. So what solution does society suggest for keeping yourself from a victim mentality? Well, you stop looking at what has happened to you, and you start looking at life with the perspective of what you can do Take extreme ownership. Be proactive. Take the opportunity. Be honest with yourself about your failures, about your successes, and do something with your life instead of just sitting there playing the victim. But did you notice that God gives us a different perspective on our life? God hasn't given anything in Romans chapter 8 for you to do. But he's not willing to treat you like a victim either. He does focus you, though, on what has happened to you, even before your pain and your problem. What has happened to you before a single day of your life came to pass? God foreknew you. With the, with the telescope of the future, he saw that you would be alive. And he chose you. He predestined you. An event, an action that took place outside of the laws of time, God said, I want that person as my son, as my daughter in faith. In fact, I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send my own son to be the sacrifice that will rid them of their sin and guilt, and will unite them to me, to make them a king, a priest in my nation, to make them a child of mine through faith. I will justify that person, God decided, for outside of time, meaning that God will declare that you are innocent, that even though you were going to be born and from day one you were going to run from God and do all sorts of things to damage your relationship with God, God said, I'm going to repair it, I'm going to bring that person back into a relationship with me. You know what I find the most amazing about what Paul says? Is that God glorified you. Past tense. Even in your pain, in your problem, in that thing that you thought of instantly at the beginning of this sermon, you have already been glorified. How does that make any sense? Well, by choosing you, by predestining you, by Committing himself to loving you, sinner that you were, God exalted you to a position you could never earn or deserve, but it's freely yours. He has glorified you by making you right with Him, by making you His child through faith. So the question is now given that these are true about you, and they have been true since a day of your life came to pass, how could you possibly have a victim mentality? How could something bad happen in your life, no matter how painful, how big or small it is? How does it make sense to have the reaction, woe is me, I am ruined, I am such a victim, when you are glorified and exalted in Christ? How can you see yourself as anything other than perfectly good with God when you are exalted to this position, when through faith in God you have been conformed to the image of Jesus himself, that when God said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, he spoke that same word about you through faith. How does it make sense to get bent out of shape when a human being criticizes you or does damage to you or harms you or writes a bad report about you and blocks you from getting that promotion or when someone just has it out for you, how does it make sense to zero in on that as if that's the most important thing? When God himself has already said, I love you and I forgive you. But before we th- you think that I'm spitting toxic positivity up here, that you just should look at the bright side and ignore all your problems. Notice that that's not what Paul is saying. Notice where Paul goes next. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Doesn't sound like Paul is ignoring that those things happen, does it? Paul is acknowledging that there's a lot of pain and hardship to life in a sinful world. In the 13th century, a Persian poet recited a fable about a, a previous king, an ancient king, who, want, who charged his wise men, his council, his court, to come up with a phrase that could control his emotions. That when he felt happy, this phrase, remembering it, could make him feel sad. And that when he felt sad, remembering this phrase could make him feel happy. And they came up with something. They came back with a ring, and on the ring was inscribed the phrase... This too shall pass. So when the king was having a great time, when he was high on life, he could just look at his ring and see, yep, even this good time, it too will pass. And when the king was down in the dumps, when he was feeling depressed, when he was feeling anxious, he could look at his ring and say, this too will pass. There's something to that, isn't there? When you're in the moment, when you're in the struggle, when you're feeling the pain, it feels like it's going to last forever, doesn't it? Remembering the temporary nature of all experiences helps you get through it. Remembering that even the scraped knee will heal, even the setback at your job, eventually you won't remember it anymore. This too shall pass. But Paul has so much more to give us, doesn't he? He's not talking as if the pain doesn't happen. He says persecution happens, the sword happens, and the Romans in the first century, they certainly knew that. The government was after them, as well as everyone else in their culture was coming after Christians. They knew life was hard, and Paul wasn't trying to just smear over that, tell them to ignore it, but what he's saying is this too will pass. I don't know if you know this, but the persecution in Rome under Emperor Nero is not still going on because Emperor Nero has been dead for thousands of years. The troubles, the particular troubles that the Romans were going through at this time, they have all ceased. All of the Christians that Paul is writing to are now in heaven, enjoying God's glory. And so with you, brothers and sisters. Your pain, your problems seem so big right now, and we don't want to belittle that, but it will come to an end. The problem with that ring, though, is it was meant to ground the the emperor, the king, in his good times and remember the temporary nature of those good feelings. But Christ doesn't do that. Instead, he points you to the everlasting nature of his love. Christ's love will never pass. Your status as God's dear child, that will never be taken away. Your glorification in God, exalted to this position of his, his son, his daughter through faith, That's not going anywhere. And trouble and persecution and the sword and temptation and relationships and a hard day at work, they're hard to go through, but they don't change a single thing God has done for you. That's why Paul concludes, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Have you heard of the show Hot Ones? It's an interview show that has celebrities come on, and the interviewer will ask well thought out and personal questions of the celebrity. But while they're talking, the celebrity's eating spicy chicken wings. And with each question, the, the, the sauce on the wings gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And I love this show, so I've seen a lot of episodes. But what will happen sometimes is the celebrity, the particular one that he has on, does not have a very good spice tolerance. And so after two wings, maybe, they're already crying and they're drooling and they're they're chugging milk, and sometimes they bring in their own like, medicine and stuff to try to stop the spicy feelings because they are in pain. And it can sometimes get pretty awkward because the guy still has an interview he wants to do, and so they're sitting there crying and sweating, and he's still trying to ask them questions, but they don't hear a word that he's saying because they ab- are absorbed by the pain of the moment. You see where I'm going with this your trouble, your anguish. It's so easy to get absorbed in the moment. Because it's real. You have those times when you're curled up on your couch after a very difficult week, and you feel absolutely powerless. Or you're sitting at the edge of your bed wondering how it could be that you did what you just did again. Or you are Worried to death about what's happening between you and your loved one, where your relationship is going. But what do you do in those moments, brothers and sisters? You don't get absorbed by the pain. Remember, not even this has separated you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You are not a victim. You are a victor. Your victory is in Christ. And nothing, not even the worst of the worst, has changed that. This too shall pass. Remember that, brothers and sisters. Speak God's love language, that even the problems and the pain and the temptations, it serves your good somehow. Just trust in Him. You don't have to understand how. Just trust that He will. Look at what he's already done to show you his love for you. You are already a victor in Christ. You are not a victim. Amen.